Okay. Romans chapter 11 is where we're starting. We're supposed to cover 11 and 12. We'll see how it goes. Uh, You know, chronologically where we are, we're at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, or the last parts of it. He writes this book probably from the city of Corinth, where he stayed for three months, uh, to the church in Rome, and there are both Jew and Gentiles in that church. No apostles have been there yet, so the only miraculous gifts they have are just scattered among the ones that came from somewhere else and settled there. So any new converts didn't have miraculous ability. And so he wanted to be there. Paul wanted to be there to give them the various miraculous abilities that were needed. So they would be established and mature. Uh, But they've got a struggle. And the struggle there primarily is, and this happened a whole lot. You've seen it as we've gone through uh, the New Testament from the day of Pentecost onward. You've seen so many times that the early church struggled with the relationship that the Jew had to the old law and how they... Uh, applied that to even to Christianity and to the Gentiles specifically, and that was a, a struggle and a conflict. And, you know, if this is what you had always been all of your life, this is all you had been and what you had been taught, and every day from the day that you were born, you were set up for this particular way of life, the old law under Judaism, and then all of a sudden that changed, well, that's a challenge, isn't it? And so it was a real struggle for them, especially the Jewish Christians, to to grasp what God was teaching through this new covenant and to let go of all they had ever known in this old covenant. And it became even even more difficult to do when persecution would come because, you know, if you went back and held on to a little bit of that, some of the persecution would go away. So uh, they struggled with that as well. But as he's gone through this book, what he's really doing is, and you've heard me say the theme many, many times, uh, the point that he's making in the book of Romans is nobody's ever been saved without the blood of Christ. Okay, that's doesn't matter if they were under the Old Testament or the New Testament. doesn't matter. All who are saved are saved through the blood of Christ. So all those sacrifices under the Old Testament were pointing to and bringing the Messiah, right? And now everything points back to, uh, you know, the blood that Jesus shed in his crucifixion. And so even today we have the same, you know, the same point. And it even started back in Genesis 3 when God himself made that sacrifice and then made that prophecy about the seed coming. So, and that was the Messiah. So, so he's making that point, and in doing so, he's contrasting the old law and the new law, and most specifically, he's talking about what they had been in the most recent chapters, what they had been under the old law, and how the Jews had not even been faithful there. You know, they hadn't been what they thought they were at that point, and, and they hadn't been faithful to God, and on top of that, they really hadn't really even hung on to all of the law. And so he was pointing out what would happen or what it meant to try to go back. Now, as he gets into chapter 11, you know, one of the things you've seen him do as we've gone through the book is he anticipates objections or questions or whatever, and he answers them, you know, in this letter as though they have asked it to him based on what he's already taught. So as he's talked about Israel and how that, you know, Israel, the the old law is done, and so that nation is no longer truly Israel, God's Israel, that there's a spiritual Israel that is the church. So then now he gets into chapter 11 and he starts to anticipate their question would be, uh, you know, does that mean all the Israelites are lost? I mean, God has rejected the Jews. Does that mean all the Jews are lost? That would be a logical question, don't you think? So we'll start in chapter 11 and see how he deals with it. I say then, has God cast away his people? Now that's the Israelites. Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite. Of the seed of Abraham, 
of the tribe of Benjamin. That's a logical argument, isn't it? You know, he's saying this is not a conflict. That's the problem. We think, at least that's the way they were thinking as they obeyed the gospel, that was a conflict with the old law. That's why Paul himself was trying to stamp out Christianity, isn't it? He saw it as a blasphemy against God and a conflict against this law. And so what he's saying here is, you know, if you didn't come to the conclusion, does that mean that all Israel, all the Jews are, are now all lost because they're, they were under that old law? And he's saying, certainly that's not true. I, am, I have the right bloodlines. I'm an Israelite, and yet I'm a Christian. So let him keep going. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And so he said, you know, in the book of Ephesians, one of the things that Paul says is God knew in the very beginning what was going to happen. And he knew that those who would be saved would be ultimately Christians, right? Those through the blood of Jesus. And so now he looks back and, and sees he's, the, the logical question that they would ask is, is all Israel now lost? And he said, no, look at me and then think back to the way that God said it all along. What he promised all along. And he uses the account of Elijah. And you know the account. It's when he is battling with the prophets of the Baal on the top of the mountain. And the conflict is they've set up these two altars. And whichever God is the real God is going to send down this fire. So all of the prophets of Baal are crying out and pleading with their God. And they're cutting themselves. And they're shouting and nothing. Right? So then Elijah has all that water dumped all over his his sacrifice and his altar and the trench that's around it and then god sends down fire and consumes all of it right and you remember what happened next he had all those prophets of baal killed and jezebel said i'll do the same to you by tomorrow morning so he ran he ran and out there in the wilderness his statement was take my life because nobody's faithful anymore And God said, I've yet 7,000. We're not stuck on the number 7,000. The point is, there's a remnant. And so what Paul is now saying here is, God rejected the nation of Israel, but the people of Israel, the remnant, the faithful, paid attention, and they became Christians. And that included, I mean, look at the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people obeyed the gospel on the day of Pentecost. Those are Jews. So he's, he's talking about God has promised always there would be a remnant, and there always has been. Keep reading. Verse 6. And if by grace, he, see, he ended verse 5 by talking about according to the election of grace. If by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But it is, if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it was written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David said, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see, and bow down their back always. Now I'm going to get on my hobby horse just a little bit. There is a new... uh, breed of preachers uh, in the last, I don't know, 20, 25 years or so. 
that decided that the old-time preachers didn't know what they were talking about and that they didn't ever preach about grace and that today preachers preach about grace. They don't talk about all those things that those, you know, hellfire and brimstone sermons and things like that. We need to just be positive all the time and if we focus on grace instead of works, then we figure out more who we're supposed to be. I fall probably into the old category, uh, but here's the point. This is a passage that they use. This is a passage that the denominational world uses. See, if it's by grace, then it's not by works, is it? And if it's by works, then it's not by grace. And so then they take things and they determine what is a work, and they say, see, you don't have to do that. Here's the problem. Preachers don't know the Bible today, evidently. There's a context. And the context that we're talking about is Israel under an old law versus a remnant who came out of Israel to a system of grace. And he said, if it was by the old law, if they could be saved by the old law, did they even need to come out of it to this new one? And if they can and and are saved by the new law, then what about the old law? Were they saved under it? And the answer is no. So his contrast is between the laws. And he even points out, he quotes from the prophets and says, look, look at history and recognize that what God said. You remember before they ever got in the land, right? Joshua is telling them all about what's going to happen as they enter into the land. That last sermon, I highlight that pretty frequently. It had three points and they just kept getting worse. You know, better be careful. If you forget about God, he's going to send you to captivity. I'm telling you, you better be careful because you're not going to listen. You're going to go to captivity. And finally, point number three is, never mind, you're not going to listen. You're going to captivity, right? And, it, and what he was saying to prove those points was, or to make those points is, you're going to get in the land, and it's flowing with milk and honey, and you're going to be prosperous. And when you're prosperous, you're no longer going to think you need God. Right now, you've been going out in the in the in the wilderness or whatever the desert every day to gather up your manna except for except for on the sabbath day right so they know they need god here right but what about when you've got a big beautiful vineyard or farms or whatever well you don't need him so much he said that all along and that's what happened and even when we get to the point of jesus that's what he says here listen listen to it again let their table become a snare and a trap Verse 10, let their eyes be darkened that they may not see. That's what happened when Jesus showed up in his ministry and those people that were in power, that's why they rejected him. They were losing power, their prosperity, their table. They were losing their place at the table and so they said they wanted it more. Now we can make application many ways. You know, if it, if it costs you a job to be a Christian, would you still be a Christian or would you decide to go halfway or think you could go halfway in between or maybe just give it up altogether if your spouse said listen uh you're gonna have to give up christianity or i'm leaving what do you do if your family says i'm throwing you out what do you do his point is when the blessings that we have become our god we've walked away and that's what israel did god blessed them and they 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 made the wrong choice yep Yeah. 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 And, and it's and it's we would think it's strange, though it probably is more common 
that it was the blessings that became their stumbling block more than their struggles. When we struggle, we know we need God. But the blessings? All right, verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's a little confusing right there. And we read it, and, and some people say, see, that Israel's not lost. Uh, that's not what he said. Well, his point is, did Israel, is, is it just that, that God rejected this nation so these people would be lost? And his answer is no. As long as the old law was in place, what did the Gentiles do to reach God? Yeah, they had to become a Jew, didn't they? Okay, well, you know, uh, after the day of Pentecost, how difficult it was for a Jew who became a Christian, right? The persecution they suffered and, and all of the things that happened to them. Well, what about a Gentile who decided under the old law to become a Jew? How do you think his life went? Just about the same, didn't it? So that was a stumbling block to the Gentiles. And so now that that's gone, the Jewish nation is, is rejected now as a nation, then all of a sudden... Jew and Gentile can be one, and that's his point in this book on top of it is, you guys are one. You're talking about Gentiles are terrible, and you're talking about Jews are terrible, and I'm telling you, you're all terrible. Verse chapter 3, everybody sinned. But God loved us, chapter 5, and sent his son even while we're enemies. And that's all under this system of faith, this system of grace. So they're one. Keep reading. Now, if they're fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? If what happened with the Jews actually brought about the opportunity for the gospel to go to the Gentiles, what about those Jews who were the remnant, who became Christians? What impact would they have on the Gentiles? You ever, uh, you ever encouraged by somebody who becomes a Christian? You ever encouraged by somebody who became a Christian that was a long way away from God, at least the way we look at it? We're all a long way away from God without him, but we look at it as somebody who really has their life in this huge mess, and we say, that person came a long way, right? I baptized a guy. Uh, in fact, uh, it was somebody's father who's here. I baptized him uh, back in 19, uh, 2001, December 2001. Uh, I had talked to him for, I don't know, a year or so, and it was when I was at Jupiter, the last Sunday that I was there before we moved, he was walking out the back door and I said uh, something like, uh, I don't remember the exact words, but something about, you know, you're going to let me move out of here before you are baptized. And he called me <laughs> and said, all right, it's time. So we went to the building and we were in the baptistry. And as I was just getting ready to ask him if he believed Jesus was the son of God, they were getting ready to open the curtains. He said to me, I remember these words. You better push me down a long ways. I've got a lot of things to be forgiven of. Okay, we see people change. It shows us the power of God, doesn't it? Okay, and that's, that's what he's saying here. The remnant shows us, you know, God can overcome our barriers. God can overcome our, our racial differences, our societal differences, our educational differences, our, our, our national differences. None of that matters. That's kind of the same point he made in Galatians when he talked about neither slave nor free or Jew or Gentile or male or female or whatever. Remember? Keep reading. Verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles. He's been speaking to the Jews mostly up to here, hasn't he? So he's kind of making this a little bit applicable, obviously. All of it's applicable to everybody, but 
to speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am apostles of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So a part of, you know, even though, you remember he talked about he wanted Israel to be saved, right? And he said, you know what, I would suffer if that made it happen for them. Now he says, I am the one that God sent to the Gentiles, but I'm hoping that this work actually affects some of the Jews too. Because that's his family, right? For if their being cast away is reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Wait a second. How is their being cast away reconciling the world? What's his theme? What's his theme? Nobody ever been or ever will be saved outside of the blood of Jesus. The fulfillment of the old law, which is the removal of Israel as God's chosen people, happened because Jesus died, was buried, fulfilling all of that, and resurrected to bring about salvation. So their being cast away is what brought the world life. How much more so those people who came out of Judaism with the blood of Jesus and obeyed the gospel. 16. For, for the first fruit's holy, the lump's also holy, and if the root's holy, so are the branches. Obviously, the root is Christ, right? And so we are branches, and we as individuals are, uh, we receive our nourishment from the root, right? Okay, and he's going to say that further. And some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, remember he's talking to the Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root. And the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Isn't that what happens a lot of times? If somebody is being, you know, let's say somebody did something to you that hurt you in some way, whether they said something mean to you or whatever, don't you feel justified in getting even? You feel better, right? And then when they question, when you do something harsh to them and they say, why did you do that? Well, rather than saying, you know what, you're right, I'm sorry, what you say is, well, look how you were treating me, right? That's what we're tempted to do, and that's what the world does. But a little more, we don't just want to get even, we always want to escalate it a little bit. We have to get ahead, which makes them have to get ahead, which then you see it's a vicious cycle, right? And so what happened when the Gentiles had been so looked down upon by the Jews and now that they're all one what would be the temptation is for the Gentiles to say see we told you that all along you guys had it all wrong and he said no you remember where the Messiah came from and that God used these people and they were the natural branches and if you've been grafted in and you're surviving into this tree you're not the ones that are providing the nourishment you're the ones getting the nourishment right if everybody's dependent on the root who's better than the other one nobody nobody Yep, yep, absolutely. All right, 19. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. You see it? Some of you people broken off because I'm listening to God and you're not. You see the attitude? Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you do stand by faith, but do not be haughty but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches... He may not spare you either. If he can cut off one branch, he can cut off another one, can't he? And so his point is, you've got to remember where the nourishment comes from. 
who this is about. He didn't say no man has ever been or ever will be saved out of your blood. It's his blood, right? Verse 21, uh, 22. Therefore, you notice that word, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more would these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, I wanted to read that whole thing together because oftentimes we use that verse, Behold now the goodness and severity of God, to try to talk about balance. And I think we ought to have balance. I try to have balance in my teaching, in my preaching, and in my life. I think, I think most of the time, if you're on an extreme, you're off and the center is usually where we need to be. Uh, so I get that about God. But what he's talking about here is the same God who loves us will cut us off if we don't remain true to him. But the God who loves us will graft us in no matter where we come from if we just follow him. That's pretty important, isn't it? In other words, God gives us, let me say this right, not what we deserve, not what we earn, Not what we want, but what we let him give us. He wants to save all of us. We all deserve to be judged and lost. What we let him do is either save us or condemn us. It's our choice. It's our choice. 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own opinion that hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles had come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. So here's what happened. The beginning was such a drastic thing when the Gentiles started coming in that the Jews couldn't accept it. But eventually the church became Christians, not Jew, Gentile, Israelite, Roman, whatever. Eventually, division became unity. And that's what he's going to start talking about in chapter 12. And so what he's talking about is, as Israel was cast away, those who are saved will be saved the exact same way the Gentiles are saved and anybody else. Everybody's saved the exact same way. Through the blood of Jesus. Keep reading. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Uh, You know, 
Is there any entity in the world that can do what the church does? Let me, let me define that. Ernie Varvel. Most of you that are older members remember Ernie Varvel. Uh, Ernie was a long-time member here, one of the elders for a long time. Uh, Ernie sat down with me one time, and he was talking about buying a car. <laughs> he had driven that old car. You may remember it had so many miles on it. That thing was so old. And he had a friend. The friend owned the Toyota lot down here at the time. And that friend talked him into buying a Toyota. said it took him two years to buy that Toyota. And when I asked him why, he said, because of Pearl Harbor. Now, I was born in 1968. So I know about Pearl Harbor. I visited Pearl Harbor. But I didn't live it. Okay? So I don't understand that particular mindset. But he did. And some of you do. Okay? That happens also in races in our country. In our world. It's in our country too, doesn't it? And it's because of what you were taught, right? You grow up with something being taught something and you don't know to change it, okay? Well, I'm telling you something. We're not going to fix all that stuff by laws. We're not going to fix all that stuff by rewriting history. We're not going to fix all of that stuff by changing parenting. The only way all that stuff's ever going to be fixed is in here. The church is the one place that it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter your race, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, it doesn't matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter how great is your education, we're all the same. The church is that place, the only place in it that has ever existed where everybody could be united. And what he says here is, look at the wisdom of God, what man could come up with that plan? What man could tell God how to do it? I got a better way. That We say stuff like that sometimes. If I were God, I'd do this. Oh, yeah, that's why I'm not God. His wisdom is far above ours. So Paul says, he just, it's almost like he just shouts out here this praise. It's incredible how wise God is by displayed by the fact that we're united. Okay, now look at him. Chapter 12. And again, we've got another connecting word here. You see in a lot of those, especially in Romans, aren't you? I beseech you. That, that word means beg, right? I'm pleading with you. Therefore. So we're keeping this, this thought about God's wisdom and God's knowledge. And nobody telling God, you know, oh, I think you ought to do it this way. Or this would be a better way. God's far above us. So I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God... That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, I want to go at this from two different ways. The first way is, is separate. Let's start with that. The last part of verse 1 says it is your reasonable service. There are some translations of the Bible that say reasonable service of worship. And so what people draw from that is that it, uh, everything that we do is worship. So everything in your life is worship. That's not taught in the Bible, and the wording is not in this verse. So when they translate it that way, they try to translate an idea. It's not in this verse. What is in this verse is the word logic. So what Paul is saying is that it is only logical for you to serve God. 
That's what you were made to do. But in this context, he's taking that and saying not only it's logical because you were made this way, but his context is saying because of the fact that everybody can be one in the church and because of the fact that God's wisdom is so far above us, not only do I not have a way to stand before God and say, I, I think you should have made the world this way, I also don't have the ability to stand before God and say, you know what, I think I'd have a better life going a different way than God's way. What I have is God saying, look, I know you better than you even know yourself. You know, we, we struggle. We think we know people. You don't know anybody but yourself. You, you know other people to a certain extent, but really, you yourself is the only one you know. But God knows you better than you. We think the world makes us happy. God says, yeah, that's not going to do it. People think, you know, drugs make you happy. God says, that's not going to do it. We think having as many spouses as you want make you happy. You just keep changing until you find the one that makes you happy. God says that's not going to work. So what Paul begins chapter 12 by saying is, because God's way up here, what we need to do is we need to recognize that we can't say to God, I just think my way is better. Rather than do that, I need to sacrifice myself as a living sacrifice to become what he wants me to become. And then I'll get what I always dreamed of, which is the... Like he said in Philippians 4 and verse 6, the peace that passeth all understanding. Like he said in John 14, the ability not to be troubled. Like he says in Ephesians 1, all spiritual blessings, the inheritance, the redemption, all those things fall into this if we transform rather than determine we can do it our own way. Keep reading. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Stop there. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. So that's got two levels in this context. And the first one is, don't think I know more than God, which we've already talked about. And the second one, don't think that I'm better than you either. It's easy for me to recognize I'm not better than God. Might not be so easy to recognize I'm not better than you. You see that? And this especially happened with them. And we talked about this in the book of 1 Corinthians when we were in that portion that was talking about the miraculous gifts. And so I stand before you and say, well, God gave me the miraculous ability to speak in tongues. And he only gave you the miraculous ability to translate. Well, guess what? You couldn't do your job. Well, I didn't do mine. That makes me more important. See how that works? And if you remember, our context started with this tree and the branches being grafted in and the nourishment came and the gifts came from the root, not from the branches, did it? So he says, don't think you're so important. You're all one. You're all one. No matter what gift you have, the purpose of the gift that you have is because you're all one. You have to work together and function together and you all have what you have because of the need that, that you all have as a family of God to, to be one. 
So don't elevate yourself above God and don't elevate yourself above each other. Now, I want to back up and read it again because I don't think it quits there in verse 8, but I had to stop there. I want to start in 6 and just keep going this time. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Not the end, but let's stop there. Is there such a thing as fake humility? Fake humility. There is such a thing. Uh, Are you ever tempted when you do something for the cause of Christ for somebody else? Like, I don't know, you send them a card of encouragement or you, maybe somebody was in need and so you helped them financially with something or maybe they were struggling with something and you helped them with it. Do you ever get upset if they don't come back later on and say thank you? Why'd you do it? For the praise or for God? Okay, what ends up happening is I can do good things because God tells me to do them. I can show you love because God tells me to show you love without ever loving you. And if their actions toward each other, their idea of being, well, we're going to be one, well, because God says I have to, but I don't really feel it that's a hypocritical love isn't it so he says love needs to be without you got to really you got to really be a family don't pretend to be one be one and then he says abhor what is evil and cling to what is good and we can use that to apply it to anything obviously we want to stay away from evil in the world right we want to be faithful to god and cling to what's good but our context is talking about our relationship to each other so what we do is we avoid everything that destroys the unity of this family well that's pretty simple don't gossip right oh never mind it's not so simple Don't get even. Not so simple. Don't put each other down. That's tough, isn't it? Grumble and complain. I'd have retired by now if I had a dime for every time I was complained about. Just probably by my wife. Yeah. It's got to be real. Now, is anybody going to be perfect with that? No. No. We're going to have our struggles. But God even tells us how to figure that out, doesn't he? And that's how we grow and that's how we develop. So just cling to those things that help us in our faithfulness to God and our unity as a family and try to get away from all those things that affect that and destroy it. Yeah, you, yeah, become it, yeah. Now I want to read part of it again because... 
you know, I, I go so far because I want it to be, I want us to keep our context going, but then I don't, I don't get to explain it all just yet. Verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, giving preference to one another. Oh, that's hard to do too, isn't it? I want to be important. I need you to praise me. But he says, worry about somebody else. Not lagging in diligence. Seek the best for others and work hard. Fervent in spirit. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing the needs of the saints. Giving to hospitality. You know what? He's describing a family, isn't he? I mean, that's, isn't that what we do in our homes? We take care of each other and we do what's best for the family, right? Why is it any different here? 14. Now it's going to get harder. As if it wasn't hard enough already. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Now, it's not the end of the verse, but let's stop there. Okay, now it's a little harder. Like I said, we're not perfect, are we? So sometimes we do have problems. And when somebody opposes you, don't get even. How does that help? Husbands and wife. A husband and wife are married, and, uh, of course, they're, they're going to... Uh, show of hands. How many people have been married and never had a fight with their spouse? If you raise your hand, I'm going to call you a liar. Okay, it happens, doesn't it? Okay, now, uh, now raise your hand if you've been in an argument with your spouse and you've never argued for the purpose of winning the argument. Show me your hand now. That's what I thought. Yeah, that's what I thought. All right, we we have to win, right? We have to win the argument. Okay, well, that happens in the church too. Sometimes we win it by justifying ourselves, right? reason I treated you this way is because you treated me that way. Okay, when that comes into the church, does that promote unity or destroy unity? So, you know, be a family. Don't attack each other. And when people are hurting, hurt with them. When people are happy, be happy with them. Be a family. Rejoice with each other. Keep going. Verse 16 again. Be of the same mind toward one another. That doesn't mean we all think the exact same way. That means we all have the same purpose. Same mind. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. (laughs) Nobody ever judges anybody else's spirituality based on their own standard, do they? Yeah. If you start saying somebody else is not faithful because they're not as strong as you, you've just put yourself in a position where you're not the standard. <laughs> so a part of being this family is to recognize we're all, we're all the same. We're all only saved because of the blood of Jesus. We only get our nourishment from the root. Keep going further. Yes. Well, that's true. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective, but that's a problem too. When we look and say, these people are stronger than me, and so I don't have any hope whatsoever. And yeah, that's a good point. All right, now repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. 
I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If you thirst, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, all that was the negative stuff, right? All the things that happened to you, don't get even, don't take vengeance, don't repay because we don't do it good. We don't do it well. We don't do it well because we don't just get even. We, we got to get ahead. And so, and we don't always know, you know, anybody ever had a coworker or a family member or whatever that, that maybe lashed out and then you found out later that they were going through some real trial in their life. You just didn't know about it. And it kind of became the, the fuel to their lashing. The idea of the guy came home, had a bad day at work, and came home and kicked the dog. Well, the dog didn't have anything to do with it, did he? But the guy had the bad day, right? You don't know what's going on in everybody's life, so you can't get even because of what you think you know. So don't do those things that, that hurt the unity of the body of Christ. Do the things that build it up. Hang on to the things that are good. goes right back to that statement that he made about or the verses that he talked about not, not knowing as much as God knows and not being as wise as God. So trust the fact that what he tells us is the, is the better way. Oh, yes, I was going to highlight that too. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to always get along with everybody. Yep. Yep. It's a tough, it's a, it is a tough passage. The challenge for us is to be a people that I'm not going to be the instigator nor the uh, responder. As much as I can possibly do, be the one who's creating peace, I'm going to do it. And if peace is not there, it isn't going to be my fault. It's going to be their fault. Now, saying it and doing it's a little different. That is a, that is a struggle that I know that many of us, if not all of us, have. But uh, that is what we strive to be. And if, as a part of a family, it becomes a little easier. Okay, let's close with a prayer.